Hey, who's starting this show anyway? Uh, not I. I think we need Dr. Wakefield. Hmm. All right. So this is Dr. Wakefield, author of Team Sports Marketing, your favorite textbook in college, I'm guessing. Uh, in any case, uh, we're starting our podcast. We'll tell you the, about the key terms, taking a little trip maybe around different parks and stadiums, arenas, and hopefully get it stuck in your mind what those key terms are so that you'll kill today's quiz or the next test. Today we're here to talk about some of the ideas in chapter two, which is on fan identification and passion. We have Dr. Wakefield, of course, and myself. Yourself, it must be Whitney Hancock, our marketing manager. Um, and uh, glad to talk to you this morning, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you may be, uh, driving down the road the way to school uh, or on your bike, whatever you may, may be doing. Yes, we're gonna talk about fan passion. Um, and as I'm thinking about fan passion, Whitney, I'm thinking about one of the things that many of us may have enjoyed recently. If not, you need to go look it up. But uh, Bill Walton, all-time NBA great, uh, did color commentary on a White Sox Angels game. Uh, and of course, he had many things to say. And I think if you're a very passionate fan uh, of basketball and baseball, what could be better than Bill Walton uh, you know, talking baseball, which he apparently knows absolutely nothing about. Um, so if you are a passionate fan of, let's say, the White Sox and the Angels, this could be maybe more fun. If you're passionate Pac, I think it's Pac-12, uh, Walton does a lot of Pac-12 basketball games on one of the networks, uh, then you might enjoy this even more. Um, so if you're a passionate fan, you identify with the team, it's part of who you are. When you talk about yourself, and that's what we're talking about today. Um, but go check out what Bill Walton <laughs> uh, said in some of his, his commentary, uh, where he asked at one time after uh, the side was struck out, he said, what is the current record uh, for strikeouts in, in, in an inning? Whitney, do you know? Um, um, uh, three. That would be correct. Although, in retrospect, if some of you baseball fans out there might say, I bet it might be four. Any idea why that might be, Whitney? How could that possibly be? <laughs> what do you think, sports fans? Because if you're highly involved, if you look at our model of identification, why you identify with the team, first thing is you have to know, have a clue uh, and be involved and know something about the sport, right? So if you know a lot about baseball, you might know that if you strike out on a pass ball and get to first base, it's not recorded as an out. So I bet somebody has struck out the side plus somebody with a pass ball. So I bet the record's actually four. Conceivably, it could be higher, but I doubt it. So uh, that's the first part of our model that you'll see in um, Chapter 2. Uh, you have to be involved with the team and the sport, rather the sport in some way, before you can even care about one of the teams. Because you don't like baseball, Whitney. You like baseball? Yeah, you I like going to games. Yeah, you follow Major League Baseball at all? Not much. Yeah. Only if I happen to be around the Rangers. 
Yeah, and there's not much going on up there in Indiana, although you're not that far from Chicago and the Cubs and so on. Uh, well, this model that we're talking about follows this basic um, consumer behavior pattern of cognition, emotion, and behavior. So what you uh, think about something affects what you feel that affects what you do. So depending on what you think about a team uh, and various aspects of it in the sport, affects how you feel, how much you identify, or how passionate you are. And then that affects your behavior, like whether you'd be willing to sit through an entire broadcast for baseball, um, uh, which Walton has some comments on that as well. I'll let you look them up. Not all presentable here on, on this podcast, but um, quite funny. Um, so uh, let's move on down into, we talked about involvement. Uh, situational involvement and there's enduring involvement. So situational involvement, uh, maybe some of y'all out there have been uh, to a big game recently that you otherwise wouldn't go. Like, um, actually, when we were in Chicago a few weeks ago, we went to a White Sox game uh, with several of us. Ordinarily, I wouldn't care about the White Sox, but all of a sudden I do now that we're at the game and I find out some more about the players. And now maybe I care a little bit more about the White Sox than I would before. They played the A's, so I actually, because of situational involvement, became a little more, um, you know, interested in those those teams <clears throat> compared to my enduring involvement, which is for baseball, uh, probably for a long time. I would say since a young child, uh, when I followed the Reds uh, back in the days, well beyond uh, any of the listeners here, probably uh, except for my colleagues, I'm sure. Uh, from the 60s and 70s. Um, so we talked about enduring involvement, situational involvement, about the circumstances. And then let's talk about variety seekers. And if you're trying to increase situational involvement by running a promotion for maybe your um, your university's games that nobody's going to, or maybe they are and trying to get more of them, or anything at all, uh, or getting uh, people to go to a new restaurant or another place to eat or wherever you're going this weekend, some of y'all out there are variety seekers. Whitney, how about you? You mentioned a variety seeker when you go out, or do you go to the same places all the time? A uh, variety seeker. Yeah, that's what I figured. Actually, most millennials, so probably almost everybody out there shaking their heads. Yeah, I always like to change and uh, for change of pace, go someplace different. But what happens is, and I just heard this again on a Freakonomics episode only this week, um, that as you get older, you start shutting off your alternatives and you, if you will, get in a rut and you aren't much of a variety seeker. Um, I think that's probably because you try a lot of them and you realize those are bad alternatives and you start sticking with the better ones or it could be we're just so old and tired and worn out, not positive. But nonetheless, uh, it is true. Younger people seek variety, old people less variety and more in a rut. So what if I get you to go to a game based on some promotion? Maybe you want to see some concert before or after the game, or maybe it's a, a big game against an arch rival. What are the odds I can get you back? Hmm. What would make you want to come back if you only went to one game up at, uh, I don't know, actually where you are there in Notre Dame land, uh, Whitney, if you went to, what is it, the single A Cubs team? No, yeah. South Bend Cubs. Have you been? I have. How many times? Once. And you've yet to go back? I haven't gone back. You're right. So my guess is you were wanting to check it out as a variety seeker, but what are the odds you go back 
Not unless you can find some way to get them actually involved with or you involved with that team and care about them, which is why minor league sports, you know, is tough to sell a lot of season tickets. But we do have a few ways in the book. We talked about to increase that enduring involvement. So if we can get you to somehow uh, participate and get to know any of the players. In fact, I know some minor league teams where they uh, kind of let families adopt minor league players so they get to know them and then meet other friends and they feel interested more interested in the team um <laughs> so kind of weird but i guess it happens yeah, yeah. well and just think about right now where football season kicking off notre dame baylor everybody else around the country is having their meet the players scrimmage ours is this saturday and the mm. whole idea there right is once you meet somebody now you start following them um so that's one good way um the other way is maybe you don't know anything about baseball, so maybe we can teach you. So you provide information about rules of the game. Uh, probably more important for hockey or lacrosse and the others that not as many fans know about. Uh, and then if you can provide a lot of player information, you know, where any background about them, stats. That's why during the game, as much as you can, you want to give stats. Um, you know, which again, our friend Bill Walton wasn't necessarily that. Uh, great, and I'm looking to see if I can find uh, some of the other great uh, quotes that that he had. Um, yeah, hang on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of them was uh, the guy asked him, "What do you think about about trout?" And he goes, uh, "Trout's good. Did you have the salmon for dinner?" Anyway. Seems funny, um, among other things. Uh, so uh, you provide as much information as you can about each of the players and provide stats, and then finally you facilitate media, uh, you know, coverage, media exchange. So you do interviews and uh, other things to get them on broadcast um, or on radio or, or anything else. So um, that's how you convert a variety seeker to an enduring yeah. involvement. Yeah, hopefully, or at least get them back for a few more games. Um, the next thing that leads to identification and passion is performance. So everybody knows that winners uh, do attract others, but uh, a lot of it is that perceived performance. If you just look better than the next team or better than your arch rival, that can help. So there are ways to make that comparison and, and contrast. So it's not necessarily actual performance. You know, it's perceived. Uh, some good reading in the book. You, you all should make sure you check out uh, about teenage girls believe other girls more socially attractive if they have a reputation for winning arguments. What do you think about that? <laughs> were, you, were you very attractive for your ability to win arguments as a young uh, female, Whitney? Uh, not that I can remember, but... I think actually so, but anyway. And even strangers are seen as more attractive if they're shown to be winners compared to others demonstrated as losers. So no surprise to you, perhaps, but we like winners, losers not so much, um, and that can make you more involved and more identified with a team when you perform well, or at least are perceived to perform well. And that leads us to the next one, which is attractiveness, and that's the overall perceived social value of being associated with a team or an individual. So obviously it's no fun being associated with an unattractive team, person, group, uh, you name it. So again, if it's seen as attractive, uh, than better. But y'all have seen that some teams that aren't all that successful in the field, but people like them. I mean, the Cubs were that way for years. In fact, mm -hmm. um, for like a hundred years. I mean, anybody can have a bad century, right? 
so they finally got over it and won, but it was a hundred years before doing it. Um, Cleveland Browns um, have been awful, but they have a huge fan following. Uh, they're getting better now, of course, and that'll help. Um, but part of that's the similarity. So uh, Aristotle is one of the first to propose that we choose our friends based on similarity and we don't hang around with those people who are dissimilar. Again, not real amazing, but I think what's really interesting is uh, we react to others by thinking either, hey, if you're similar to me, then you must be attractive. Why? Because I'm attractive. Or if you're attractive, then you must be similar to me because I'm attractive. So any, anything that seems similar to you, you think is attractive because if you have a good self-esteem, then you think you're attractive. So one of the ways you can do this in marketing, right, is show the similarities between you know, the team and other characteristics of, you know, the fans and maybe local players that are on the team. Uh, like in Texas, obviously, we would care more perhaps about Texas players than we would those from somewhere else. Um, How'd the Browns do that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think it is the way they identify with, you know, the dog pound and the dogs and the, um, you know, it has less to do with performance and more kind of about attitude. Uh you know, so you can do that. We talk about in the book, uh, you know, how for years Pittsburgh Steelers have uh, identified themselves as being a blue collar type of team. And since there's a lot of blue collar workers around there, it makes good sense. Um, you know, one of the other ways, by the way, that we think um, people are attractive is if we have level, you know, if we have, have contact with them. You probably noticed that um, you might have hated a team but again if you go to one of the games and what if you actually met a person on the other team then you're going to start following that team and that player and that makes them seem more attractive mm -hmm. and so since good is familiar and you know familiar is good the more you can facilitate any kind of direct or indirect contact um you know the better with the players so that's why you need to have players that don't mind interacting right you can think of the jerks i guess i'd say on some teams that don't want to do um you know media interviews and that's generally not real attractive uh, so you'd like to again think about your drafting and selection of players based on their willingness to you know interact with others yeah i always liked dirk a little more ever since i high-fived him before a game yeah exactly yeah dirk Nowitzki. um reminds me of the time when um, our son Lane and I were in the lineup at the San Antonio Spurs game and back when he was in high school and uh, we were giving high fives to everybody and that time David Robinson, 7-1 was coming through the, um, the lineup and I reached up uh, to give him high five but he ducked and I whiffed uh, to hit his hand and the guy right behind him this guy who never played but he was also about 6'11 <laughs> uh ran right into my hand and I accidentally stuck my thumb up his nose which was not what I was intending um, <laughs> high level of contact yeah too much contact you think I remember his name but it was some uh, Chinese guy um, who never got off the bench um, but I do have fond memories of his nose well so you know that contact level certainly uh, can help um, and we had the contact level yeah certainly with the uh, team, which is why you do see a lot of teams do that. Where, like in baseball, you'll put uh, they'll bring little league kids out, put them at each position, and let them you know meet the players, maybe get a baseball or something from them, 
and you know, just throwing the baseball up in the stands after each inning is, you know, similar to that. Um, you know, the next thing we talk about really is, is social prestige and how do you uh, improve the social status of, you know, the team and, and the players. There's a lot of ways you can do that. In the book, we talk about I have an acronym prepaid, but it just stands for some obvious things. I think obvious things, maybe not so obvious uh, that you should do to make the team popular in town. Um, Mark Cuban, locally to us, uh, does a good job of proactively, that's the first P, um, involving fans and management decisions. You can email him at mark.cuban at dallasmavs.com and give him your peace of mind. Uh, I think he'll respond to most of those or somebody will. Um, and then next thing is you research your fans, as they are and prepaid, to find out what fans want, what they're satisfied with. We're fixing to do some more surveys here at Baylor on our fan base so we understand them clearly uh, and you know how we can serve them better. Third thing is you encourage and uh, require players, uh, if you can, but you encourage players to move their residences to the community as opposed to living you know, way far away. A lot of players will do that. It helps. Um, you can publicize efforts to reach a diversified customer base. The NBA, and I think I've seen this elsewhere, but the NBA has a certain allotment of tickets. They keep at a low price, like 10 bucks, so that, you know, everybody can get in. Um, and that, that helps in making them more socially uh, attractive. Um, we talked about acquiring and attracting players, local connections, uh, similar to making residences uh, there. You can initiate and maintain public service announcements. I see that with the NBA a lot. Um, NBA serves and they show people helping out around the community. I forget what it's called. NBA That's cares. NBA cares, not NBA serves. And then uh, <laughs> the last one is D. You obviously can develop marketing campaigns, announcements, anything else. Um, and this part is really important. That includes it's your team. You're not our team. It's your team, your event. It's the um, you know, that city's team, that state's team. That's why, um, you know, really the Florida um, Marlins changed to Miami because Florida doesn't really give that much identification to those who are most likely to go to the game down in Miami. As it turns out, no one does anyway because <laughs> they apparently don't like baseball down there and the stadium's awful. Um, next thing is uh, that makes – people identify with you know a particular team within the league for instance is how distinctive uh that team or player uh is from others and that gives them more social status and makes us feel better about supporting them and there are a lot of ways of doing that obviously winning helps um and the other things we talked about being attractive and having social prestige you know that makes it more distinctive um but certain teams have a clear uh, style or brand of play. Think basketball, where some teams are run and gun, and some teams are grinded out, um, and so on. Uh, whether we think the former may be a little more attractive, but uh, that distinctiveness uh, or maybe ruggedness for some uh, is what might make you identify with them. So that leads us all the way up to identification and passion, which kind of go hand in hand. If I think about a team or any group or place and I identify uh, with them, Odds are I'm also very passionate. So what I think about them leads to my passion of heart, mind, body, and soul uh, being committed to that, that team. And what that produces is there are really several things we talk about in the book that passion means. Uh, <clears throat> one of those is I always find interesting is consumer surplus. 
uh, you know, which is how much would you pay uh, to go to a certain uh, event, like a concert? Let's switch gears for a little bit. Whitney, how much would you pay, or maybe have you paid to, uh, at least ostensibly, go see a Taylor Swift concert? Um, I can't remember. I think it was maybe 75 or 150 when she was in Louisville. Yeah, I was thinking like 150, and I've heard others say they paid 150 or better for some concerts. And the question is, if they raised the price, if you're really wanting to go, and they raised the price to 175 would you still have paid it, or would you still? The answer is probably yes. Um, yeah, back, yeah then. back then. Now you're more mature, plus she now is on the political bent. And most every song has something to do with uh, her deep feelings about politics. Um, so maybe that consumer surplus goes down now, conceivably, or maybe it increases depending upon your bent, uh, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're very passionate, then that creates consumer surplus. Uh, if you're passionate about a team that's all-encompassing, you give your heart, mind, body, and soul to it. But what I think is really interesting is that it's that particularly in sports and entertainment, it's insatiable. Uh, you think about your favorite team, uh, if you're really passionate, the more passionate you are identified with them, you know, you don't go to just one game and say, well, that's it, I'm done. I don't need any more. No, you want to go to as many games as you can. Uh, and you see if you can find other ways to, um, uh, you know, 10 more games. So it's not like ice cream where once you eat maybe a bowl or more uh, that you've had enough. Um, with sports, you always want to buy more or go to more. Depending on how passionate you are, of course. Unless they're losing every single Well, time. right. So that's when you become less passionate, uh, right? So it's all measure or highly correlated with uh, how passionate you are will determine whether you want to consume more and whether you uh, are uh, insatiable in that. Um, mm -hmm. And that leads us to our consequences of identification. Um, and the main ones, the ones that make money for us are the three M's. So meeting, which means going to games, but not just games. Uh, a lot of teams now, usually with sponsors, or I'd say always with sponsors, have lots of other events. They have draft days. They have other non-game day events uh, before the season starts, uh, you know, getting ready during the season. Uh, they have watch parties, even though the team may be away. Uh, particularly during the playoffs, but the point is it's meeting. And then the second M is merchandise buying. So think souvenirs, everything else you buy when you go to the game or uh, that you might order online now um, that helps you show who you identify with and who your favorite team is uh, or players. Uh, then the third M is media consumption. Uh, so anything from broadcast to uh, online streaming, you know, radio, all of your media consumption is determined by how passionate you are. So if you're passionate for somebody, you go to meetings, you go to games, you buy their merch, and you consume all kinds of media. Uh, so the first uh, section we deal with really is the idea of going to, to meetings. And when you do that, one of the ways you uh, show your identification with others is uh, you know, by what you wear, and um, your self-representation to others is, is important. In any way you can make people feel like they are distinguished or different uh, as a highly identified fan, the better. So uh, I know uh, at Baylor, we get sometimes season ticket um, holder special hats, uh, maybe have a special entrance into the stadium. 
that others don't get into, um, anything you can do to make them feel uh, distinguished. Um, anything else I got to say about that? Um, no, I was thinking about media consumption. I saw recently that you can purchase just the last quarter of NBA games on League Pass, which I thought yeah, was interesting. Yeah, you can. I mean, actually, yeah, like for 99 cents, it's the NBA uh, TV or whatever. And when a game gets close, if somebody says, hey, I'd like to tune in on that, instead of they don't have the NBA Pass, I think it's like 120 bucks a season maybe, could be more now, um, then you can just rent the last quarter. Um, when I first saw that come out, I, I was thinking, not a bad idea, frankly. What if you had extra seats and the game was closed? Would you, could you sell some of the ones that are empty, um, you know, for the last quarter for people that are close by? But that's probably too much hassle. Um, yeah. Uh, all right, let's go to the next one. So one of the all-time favorite, probably key terms, I think, in this book uh, is burging also corfing, but burging, basking in reflected glory. Reflected glory. It's a term made popular really years ago by another researcher. Um, but think about what happens. Whenever your team wins, what do you do? And if you're a passionate, probably where you are, Whitney, if, when Notre Dame wins, if you're really passionate about Notre Dame, what would you do the next day? Um, talk about it or tweet about yeah. it or – Wear a Notre Dame shirt. Yeah, and you might not even do it you know, almost subconsciously. Uh, in fact, there's some that's the original burging research was exactly that. I think it's University of Michigan. They uh, the researchers uh, after every home game counted the number of people in a certain area or classes that were wearing uh, University of Michigan apparel on uh, wins versus losses, and it was significantly higher following a win than a loss. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I was thinking what I often do is, even though I was at the game, I'll read the entire story in the paper about it. I'll check all the stats, both the night after a big football game and then the next morning, look at it again, like maybe I missed something, um, and read other stories about it, and then watch the highlights. And you're doing that because you're basking in reflected glory, and that enhances your self-esteem. And what happens, though, if you're really identified, you will not corf which is cut off reflected failure uh you will say you know we won and we lost but if you're not identified very much they'll say we won and they lost so if you're ever in some group like maybe your fraternity sorority or something else and people don't like something and go i don't know why they did that well they is you it's us it's ours and you're just telling me that you're not very highly identified because you just corfed so just tell them that next time um, and of course, they'll burge whenever your your program or your organization or your team does well. Um, and if that happens, then you get positive word of mouth. So, kind of like you were saying, you talk about it with others. I mean, you all do this all the time. You see a great movie, what do you do? I'm actually asking you. Um, tell your friends next time you're together. Man, you have to see this movie. It was so awesome. Um, or same thing about. Um, music when you hear it just like I did um, when I finally heard uh, the song by who is it? Little Nass, isn't it? 
Ain't got, nobody gonna tell me Mason nothing. Ramsey? Huh? Mason yeah, Ramsey. Yeah, Mason Ramsey. Billy Ray little Cyrus. And um, I think it's a little mass, isn't it? Anyway, ain't nobody gonna tell me nothing. Let me tell you something. Yep. You're, you're a month or two late yeah, on that one. Well, hey, the fact that I'm even aware of it within the year that it was popular is pretty good for me. Um, so, uh, well, at any rate, the point is, as soon as you find some music, something you like, or uh, maybe it's Lululemon clothes, whatever it is, you're recommending to others. Uh, the next thing I think is super interesting, as a consequence of your passion and your identification with the team and with players, you make attributions about those who follow and those who don't. So you probably notice, excuse me, you probably notice that um, people at a game tend to derogate or say negative things about the opposing fans and their team and tend to have in-group favoritism toward uh, the team and uh, you know its fans. I think it's funny that when you go to a game, you don't even know who that person is sitting next to you. Um, but odds are, if you're a very passionate fan, when the team scores a touchdown or makes the winning basket, you are probably hugging that person or at least giving high fives, unless you're Howie Mandel type. Um, you know, you're probably interacting with them like you have known them all along. And of course, if you do know them, you're definitely giving them hugs uh, and going crazy when the team does well. Uh, I mean, even my wife occasionally um, you know, does that after a big score. Um, but of course, she's not extremely passionate, um, but pretty passionate, I would say, about um, Baylor sports at least. Uh, so I think the other thing that's interesting is, kind of like you were saying earlier about if, you, if you're a fan of the Rangers, for instance, but you weren't before, but when you moved to, say, Texas, you might not have cared about any of the teams in Texas, but now all of a sudden you start becoming a fan of the Rangers or the Astros whereas you didn't care them at all about by, at all about them before. And you might have said lots of bad things about their players, but now you think they're pretty good. Uh, also, you notice that when uh, somebody trades a player like to your team before you hated that player, but now they're on your team and it's all good. I mean, it's all because mm-hmm. of the attributions you make about, you know, the in-group and the out-group. By the way, just FYI, you can't avoid it. Yeah, I mean, when people say, I'm not biased, uh, you can't help it. That's a psychological reaction that who are similar to you that are in your group, we have a bias toward those who are in the out group. I don't care how wonderful and loving you might be. You automatically assign and attribute things to them that aren't uh, necessarily uh, positive. So you can you learn uh, to do better for sure, but that bias um, you know, is deeply uh, ingrained in our neuro science if you will um so there are again ways to get better um but it takes obviously uh, uh probably much more exposure to the other side which is a good idea to have friends who think differently and uh, go different places so you can get a different viewpoint like go to germany where they say things like schadenfreude and glückschmerz which actually are some terms in the book um and we're doing some research on this right now both in sports and in politics, where you ever notice that when the, your arch rival um, loses, you feel good about it? I'm not sure who your favorite team is now, Whitney. Is it Notre Dame? Um, 
Well, as far as our drival, I was thinking about the raptors. The rap raptors? Well, I guess when Kawhi was there. Yeah, okay. So Spurs, so Spurs fans out there, uh, and the Raptors. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course now they shifted. Uh maybe it'll be the uh where did he go? Clippers, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um so uh but anyway the point is whenever they uh lose uh then you feel good and when they win you feel bad which is the gluck schmertz what we found is that uh people are very passionate actually who have um not harmonious passion but obsessive passion they're two sides to the same coin kind of but the obsessive is not so good <laughs> they can't control themselves they have a lot more schadenfreude and gluckschmerz feelings and then they post on social media in the same way so they tend to put people in their place on social media. Like when the other team uh, loses, they're likely to tweet about it and make fun of them. And when they do well, they tend to denigrate them on social media. The very passionate who are, I should say, the very um, uh, unharmonious or the obsessive passionate people. I guess in the UK and Europe, and maybe even like a Honduras that just happened, uh, where you have the uh, hooligans. I mean, I don't know if you saw that, but last week uh, three people were killed before a soccer match in Honduras when a fight broke out. Uh, as the opposing team was getting there, they started throwing, I think, bricks through their windows, which usually is bad form um, you know, for the host team. And then people got killed, unfortunately. So that's the very extreme side of what's going on between the kind of in-group and out-group. Um, so one of the next, the last couple of things here is the emotional enhancement aspects of when you're very passionate about something, uh, then you have feelings that are, uh, tend to be, uh, very positive and you'll see the circumplex of emotions. This is out of environmental psychology. This is by the way, how you respond to every place. I mean, you walk into your classroom or you walk into your house you walk into a church, you walk into any place, you go even um, go to a park, go to the zoo, uh, then you will feel somewhere on these continuums or a combination of these, either very uh, high on arousal uh, or it's very sleepy or you feel very pleased or very displeased in the combination of those. If you uh, are aroused or stimulated and it's pleasurable, that's called excitement. Uh, or if you are, it's a very pleasing environment, but it's kind of sleepy, which I would think of as baseball or golf, maybe. Anyway, that would relax you. Um, or if it's very sleepy, but it's displeasurable, that's boredom. That would be also maybe, well, actually golf, can, I've started watching golf lately. Do you know that? Um, yeah, actually, it's pretty interesting once you get into it. Huh? I would assume you were pretty bored if you started doing Well, that. yeah, okay. So it's Sunday afternoons, nothing else was on. Decided to watch golf, and then I found out, guess what? It's pretty interesting when you see the amazing things they can do. Then you start learning about the players, all the things I've talked about in the first part of this chapter, and guess what? Now I kind of like to watch golf. I identify. Huh? With, now you identify with, with um, who? That's a good question. Um, probably what's his uh, speeth but he's not been doing that well recently um, for a local Texas boy. Um, and then obviously McElroy and then the guy that won the 
British Open. And now I'm forgetting his name. So I tells you I didn't pay that much attention. Uh, so why? Because it's kind of sleepy and um, it's a little more pleasurable. It's not too bad. Maybe it's relaxing. And what would be displeasurable and sleepy? Where would be total boredom? Probably your classroom. Um, maybe think some others. Uh, and then if you're displeased and you're very aroused, it's distress. So think, why in the world do people go to horror movies? I'm still not quite sure on this. You're choosing purposely to put yourself in a displeasing, high arousal, a distressing situation because you want to? I don't know. Well, for some people, it's excitement and not distress. Yeah, I suppose. They take some pleasure, sick pleasure perhaps, um, in that. Uh, so maybe what I would call displeasure, they're calling pleasure. So that it's excitement. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um I also think there's some other underlying psychological reasons, but we don't have time for that on this podcast. Um, so uh, that's the emotional enhancement side of things. But again, it's automatic. That's You can't help those feelings But if you're very passionate. Uh, I have a video on the book that should still be working that's one of the all-time greatest uh, final seconds uh, and an immortal feeling of immortal immortality uh, on the missed field goal touchdown return from Auburn against Alabama. So be sure to watch that. Uh, I don't even care about either of those two teams. I still found it very exciting. Um, but does lead us into the spontaneous behaviors. I, I don't know about you or anybody else in your family. Uh, do anybody out there or Whitney have anybody in the near family that um, has spontaneous behaviors at a game that leads them to blast referees or yell from the top of their lungs, even though they're at the top of the stadium at the referees? Uh, I think we sat in front of a few at Ole Miss games. Yes, most definitely at Ole Miss, which is where I studied dysfunctional fans, um, as we had about – actually, the research we did showed about 10% of fans there, a little bit fewer at baseball games. Um, but the same people, you know them, unless you are them, are the ones that yell the idiotic things at the refs. The ref cannot hear them. Let's suppose the ref could hear them. Is ref going to do anything differently? Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Now that you've – acknowledge and help me to acknowledge that that was a bad call i will not do it again uh, just ridiculous but again it's spontaneous some people can't help it now i think it's partly learned um but also it's a result of being highly identified and passionate and if you're obsessively passionate which is a bad thing you can't even control yourself and i think you ought to talk to someone you need to see a clinical psychologist by the way i heard about a book the other day somebody asked me uh, have you read the book? Um, do you want to, uh, maybe you should talk about it. I have. I thought maybe that. so. Um, it's for people who are in counseling who might need to get a little counseling. Maybe they should talk to someone. So if you're out there saying, yes, I have some uncontrollable urges that I've often displayed at games and my friends want to, uh, leave when they're around me, uh, or shun me, then maybe you need to talk to someone. Just my thoughts. All right. So uh, we get psychological help here and marketing exactly. Knowledge. So either way, if you need some help, if you're in our vicinity, uh, you know, give us a call. We'll try to talk you off the edge. Uh, if it's just your sports team, then get over it. Hello. It's just a game. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, there's some other ways you can, can control that um, or curb uh, that uh, aggressive behavior. 
um, by putting up signs, telling people to text them. If you have a loser sitting next to you, they'll escort them from the game, which I've actually seen happen uh, more than once. Uh, when I remember at a Red Sox game, actually. Um, has no drinking sections or at least curtail drinking uh, by late in the game can help that because my research I did on that actually found that people that are dysfunctional fans, obsessive fans, they feel like they must have alcohol to enjoy the game. Just a small tip here, but it is possible to enjoy a sporting event without it. I'm not saying you have to, I'm just saying. Um, it can be done. So in conclusion, uh, winning obviously helps, but it's not the only thing that gets you identified and passionate about the team. And uh, that's really all for this week, unless we have something else to add, Whitney. I probably should find a Bill Walton quote. I never did go back and find those. Um, I didn't get the trout one, so maybe it's a Well, so you have to be a baseball fan. It speaks to what we were saying. You have to know that Mike Trout is the best Major League Baseball player right now who plays for anybody, the Angels. And so when he had a homer, and uh, I should find the (laughs) – he he had a great quote whenever – so Trout hit a homer, and he said – I'll have to find it. Hang on one second, fans. I bet I can find it. I thought so. Um, yes. So he had a home run. He said, that's Trout swimming upstream, avoiding all the flies and sending one ricocheting throughout the universe. Swimming upstream, avoiding all flies and sending one ricocheting through the universe. That's Mike Trout on a home run. So we'll end it with that. See you next time on Chapter 3 podcast.